Well, as you know, we're continuing in a preaching series in which we're looking at pictures from the Bible that tell us about the life in the body, about the church body. And these are uh, uh, 12 particularly clear pictures of what the church looks like. And we have been doing this for six weeks, and this morning is the seventh picture of life in the church body. And this is a picture of the permanence of the church body, the uh, eternality uh, of the church body. And next week, uh, Pastor Hill will uh, take us to Colossians chapter 2 and lead us to consider a picture of the vitality of the church body, that the church body is uh, filled with life. And after vitality, we'll look at the royalty of the church and the beauty uh, of the church. Uh, this church in this uh, picture in particular is uh, a picture that is uh, quite literally uh, cosmic. It's a, a picture of the church from the perspective of God. Now, little theologians, it's very good to see you here this morning. It's also uh, very good to uh, see that you have your own worship bulletin. I hope that you uh, saw that. There should be some room in that bulletin to draw a picture, and I'm looking for a picture of uh, something that you might like to have in your backyard, let's say a trampoline or a uh, pool or a swing set or something like that. Make it big. But I don't want you to draw a picture of the finished product. You know, when you buy a product, like a trampoline, when you go to the, go to the store, they always show you a picture of the product already assembled. But when you bring it home, it doesn't quite look like that, does it? Instead, it looks like an enormous box that's filled with bits and pieces. And a swimming pool is the same way. It's a, it's a pile of uh, dirt, but then it becomes something else. And what we have in this passage is a, is a picture of the church from God's perspective. It's the church in heaven. It's really the, the picture that's on the package. It's the church when it's already done. And you know what that means? It means that the church that we live in now is a lot like those uh, pile of metal pieces, springs, and canvas spread in our backyard. But that's what I'd like for you to draw. Don't draw the completed trampoline. Draw the, draw the bits and pieces of the trampoline. But know that this is a picture of the completed church, what the church will look like. Our passage this morning is from Revelation chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 12. It's printed in your bulletin. Before we read it together, let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you for speaking to us, for making yourself known, and we would thank you this morning for the volume of your speech, that you speak loudly to us, because our hearts are dull, we're easily distracted, and in fact, we're easily, well, we're easily frightened. But you, Heavenly Father, speak loudly to us, and we thank you for speaking to us this morning. Would you use my lips as an instrument for you to make yourself known to your people? And all of us thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there you see it on page 5 of your worship bulletin, the passage, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Well, as I said earlier, this, this picture that we're looking at in Scripture is quite literally a picture. The Apostle John is being shown various uh, pictures. The biblical word is visions, but he's shown various visions by Jesus himself. Now, Jesus himself, who says to John in Revelation 1.11, write what you see in a book. And so these pictures are cosmic, they're, they're enormous, they're, they're pictures that make us feel as though we're leaving earth. And John has this responsibility, aided by the Holy Spirit, to write in a book that which he sees. Now this is from Revelation, and in your Christian walk, I don't know if Revelation has been a happy book for you, or if it has been a bad book for you. For me... It was a very frightening book, one that I tried to stay away from in my uh, early years of getting used to reading God's Word. But I want, to, I want us to hear, uh, before I even begin, two things that are very important about the book of Revelation. Now, the first is this. The book of Revelation is not meant to frighten us, but to comfort us. Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And you hear that, that this, this book is meant to be a, a blessing. It's meant to be uh, read aloud. It's so quick we are to think that if you read something like this aloud, it's going to terrify the audience, but not so. Uh, Revelation uh, 22, verse 7, the last chapter of, of Revelation, we read, Behold, I am coming soon. Uh, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Yeah, there it is again. Blessed is the one. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse, verse 4, John says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Do you hear that? Grace and peace. And now let me show you some terrifying visions. But grace and peace nonetheless. And you'll be blessed nonetheless. Well, Revelation is not meant to frighten us. It's meant, meant to comfort us. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. That there is a reason for this need to comfort you see, the Apostle John, he's writing to seven churches, and each of these seven churches are actually enduring persecution. If, if this uh, letter is written, as I believe it is, at the very end of the first century, then there's actually lots of historical evidence for the kind of persecution that these churches are feeling. During the reign of Emperor Domitian, uh, emperor worship was uh, not becoming uh, simply acceptable, but actually demanded among those who were in the Roman Empire. At the same time, uh, Christianity became understood not as a form of Judaism, but as something completely distinct from Judaism. 
And so the liberties that the Jews had in the Roman Empire, those liberties didn't actually apply to these Christians, and the Roman Empire began to understand them as different than the Jews and the members of the cities that John is writing to. They also understand that these Christians are different than the Jews. Religious liberties afforded to the Jews don't apply to these Christians. And what that meant for the churches in these various cities is that both pagans and Jews could actually become informants against Christians. It actually became easier to persecute Christians when they became distinct from Judaism and when emperor worship becomes uh, demanded. You notice what John says in uh, chapter 1 verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And so you see, the first thing is that Revelation is not meant to frighten us, but to comfort us. But the second thing is that there's great need for comfort. These are churches that are in pain. And we know that John himself, in fact, was also being persecuted. He lived in Ephesus, that's his home, but he was currently being exiled to the island of Patmos. He says that at the very beginning. Verse 9, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus is the reason he gives for his exile. There's something about his life and the gospel that has earned for him persecution. And what this passage is telling us, if we understand those two things about Revelation, this passage is telling us that despite our own persecution and the desperate need that we have for comfort, the church body will endure to the very end that we might live with and worship Jesus for all eternity. That's what this passage is about. And there's three things that we need to uh, notice as we make our way through this passage. Um, It may seem strange to you now, but I hope it becomes clear later in the sermon. But we need to spend some time asking the question, who are the great multitude of this passage? Who is this multitude? And then we want to move on from that to a second question. Uh, What are we told about the multitude? Because that's very important. John is seeing this as visions, and he he writes the details that are important in that vision. And so what are we specifically told about the multitude? So who, and then what are we told about them? And then finally this, we'll conclude with ways in which we as a church today, not just Covenant Presbyterian Church, but certainly including Covenant Presbyterian Church, in what ways are we like this multitude today? Well, let's begin at the beginning. Who are this great multitude? As I said, the book of Revelation, it's a, it's a revelation. It's a revelation that uh, Jesus Christ has, uh, has given to John that John may actually show to others. And so John, he is taking in this uh, vision, and presumably he takes it in and he writes later. I think of a city in Alaska called Homer, Homer, Alaska. It's, it's a place where uh, artists gather, and they uh, largely gather that they might uh, set up their easels and paint pictures of Kachemak Bay. Kachemak Bay is down beneath the hills uh, that make up Homer. It's a wonderful place to paint. Well, we could look at the paintings and ask if they look like the uh, Kachemak, Kachemak Bay itself, But what John is doing is he's painting with words. And we need to ask, what exactly does he see? And and John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. And the, the word that is used for no one could number is the word from which we get arithmetic. 
I looked and behold a great multitude that no uh, arithmetic could answer the number of. And yet, this is right after a number is given in Revelation chapter 7. You look a little bit earlier in Revelation 7, and you find the number of sealed individuals, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, I always like when we look at God's Word to just uh, come face to face with those things that seem most incongruous, most difficult. And here, there's a multitude that he has painted or he has written about uh, that is uh, impossible to number, and yet he's just given us a number earlier in the chapter. Now, that number, 144,000, I want us to deal with very quickly, and I want us to understand that this is a figurative number. Uh, the number of people is the number of people uh, whom Jesus says have been sealed. And that word sealed in Revelation is often, if not always, another name for conversion. And those who are sealed are those who have been uh, converted. And in fact, in Revelation 7 verse 3, and by the way, it just occurred to me that we, we removed all of your pew Bibles and only gave you the passage from which I'm preaching. So now I'm citing passages that you may not have in front of you. You have a pew Bible. You shouldn't have a pew Bible, sir. Well, I'll do it anyway because the sermon's written. Uh, in fact, in, what we find in Revelation chapter 7 verse 3 is that there is this body of people, they're named as 144,000, but they're a body of people who have the servants of our Lord written on their foreheads. That's a strange image. In fact, when I describe myself as a Christian, I never say that Jesus Christ's name is written on my forehead. Can you see it? That conversation never happens. But in Revelation, it's a description of who a Christian is. Uh, they are sealed, and they have the name of Jesus written on their forehead. And so when we come to the number 144,000, we need to understand that this is the number of all of those who are uh, Christians. This, this number is understood figuratively. Uh, everyone who is actually a believer is in that number of 144,000. There's a number of different re, uh, ways to look at this number and to understand it. Uh, there are some uh, perfections about this number that would have been understood uh, by the original audience, but perhaps not by us. But uh, one scholar says this. He says that the very nature of this number, uh, 12 times 12, and then uh, the number of uh, 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. Uh, this scholar uh, looks at the word uh, 12, or the number 12, and he looks at the number 10, and he says that uh, this particular number is supposed to convey to us an exact figure of the church that God and only God knows, and it's an exact figure of absolute perfection according to the very will of God. This is who they are. And so when we come in our passage to a great multitude, we need to understand that the great multitude is a number that we don't know, but a number that God most certainly does know. And it is a large body of people. You see, God knows who are his children. He writes our names in the Lamb's book of life. And he does so, we're told, from the very foundation of the world. Those who trust in the Lamb for salvation uh, will never be erased from that book because the Lamb is always confessing before the Father on our behalf. That's Revelation 3 verse 5. Now, let's pause for a moment. 
Now, Revelation, I think, is uh, the book of Revelation is, is scary to us because uh, it seems to be so chock full of images, and the images are so very confusing to us. It seems as though it must be uh, fearful. That's all that it could be. You know, oftentimes when we think of creativity, uh, we think of the uh, artist as being unbounded in their creativity. Uh, They write or they paint or they speak, whatever comes to mind. Uh, There's no limit to creativity. In fact, uh, we sometimes trick ourselves into thinking that uh, the more outlandish it is, the art or the uh, piece of writing or poem, the more outlandish it is, the more honest it is because it's the artist being unbounded in their creativity. But we should never read Revelation like that, and here's why. When we find uh, images in Revelation, we need to understand that these images don't come from the creativity of John, not even from the creativity of Jesus, that these images are actually bound into the story that's called the story of redemption, which is why scholars can look at the book of Revelation and say it's impossible to understand Revelation without knowledge of the Old Testament. One scholar has said that there are as many as 400 allusions to the Old Testament, not mere uh, quotes, allusions to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all over Revelation, and so it's not uh, visions that are unbounded by the creativity of a man, even a divine figure. These are uh, images that John uh, receives because they particularly connect to the Old Testament, which is the story of redemption that these churches enduring persecution need to hear and, in fact, have heard before. This is what it's like to comfort a Christian, a retelling of the story of redemption, reminding them of who they are in Christ. And so these images, they actually uh, are filled with uh, Old Testament allusions, and I think that's how we're to understand this uh, great uh, multitude that no one could number. This ought to make us think of God's promise to Abraham that those who would be blessed through him would be the number of the stars in the heavens. And that Jacob, he expected God to make his offspring like the very sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered for their multitude. That's a quote from Jacob, Genesis 32, verse 12. And so when we hear a multitude that cannot be numbered, we, we need to be thinking of God's covenant promise to be a blessing to the nations, that the number of those who are sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ as believers is a number that is a multitude beyond our counting, but not beyond God's counting. And so somehow in this multitude uh, that is in John's vision, John himself is there as a Christian because this letter was meant to comfort the seven churches from Ephesus to Smyrna to Sardis to Thyatira. Uh, uh, Starting with Ephesus, the letter would be carried to these cities, but not merely to comfort the churches uh, that John's writing to, but to comfort John himself, the the exiled one. And so John, he is in that multitude, he himself. I don't know how that happens, but he's there. And furthermore, you are there if you profess faith in Jesus Christ. You're in that multitude. I don't know how, but you're there. And you must believe that if you believe in Scripture. This is your very future. Oh, how sweet life would be if you could tell what was going to happen tomorrow or next week, or the week after. Maybe some of you are waiting for very big decisions, decisions that are being made by others, or perhaps you're waiting for analysis being made by others, analysis of your own body, or the body of a loved one. Will this person live much longer? That seems a greater question than the one, will I get this promotion? But there you have it. Wouldn't it be helpful to know? You know, believer, 
because you're here in this vision. In fact, if you're a believer, you're someone whom uh, God regards as a son of Israel. What does Galatians 3, 7 say? Uh, Know then that it is those of faith who are the very sons of Abraham. And Paul goes on to say at the end of Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Yes, but what do I inherit, you might ask? Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. That's part of your inheritance as a Christian. This is the great multitude, and those who profess faith in Jesus now are a part of that great multitude. But the next question, I think, is a little bit harder. What exactly is it that we're supposed to learn about this great multitude? What is it in this vision that John first sees and then John puts to paper that it would be a source of encouragement and comfort? And there's three things that we're told specifically about this great multitude. The first is this. The great multitude is battle-worn. Battle-worn. The word for multitude in the Greek actually has connotations of uh, battle. It's as if the great multitude uh, is a multitude of soldiers, as it were. In verse 9, we're told that they're holding up palm branches. Uh, By the way, the holding of palm branches is unique in the Bible to John. It's always John that is mentioning palm branches. And, And the most ordinary understanding of palm branches in the ancient world would have to do with war. The most ordinary understanding, the understanding that a kindergartner would have in the ancient world of a palm branch would be that associated with some kind of war in which there was a victory. These palm branches would be a symbol for victory. And alas, there has been some kind of battle. But look in the scene. The results of the battle have already been determined. Because there are people waving palm branches. They've won. In fact, many scholars see in verse 10 not necessarily eternal salvation or not uh, only eternal salvation. This passage, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Uh, That word is filled with war imagery to many scholars. If salvation belongs to our God and to our Lamb, uh, that could very much refer to a victory that is secured by the work of the Lamb. It's almost as if these, uh, these are uh, words of victory, uh, like a real cry. It's no uh, mystery that crying out occurs a couple of times in this passage. Crying out with a loud voice, almost as if it's a war cry, not of defeat, but a war cry of victory. There's victory here, and it has been worked by the Lamb. You see, Revelation is, after all, meant to comfort Christians who are suffering. And as they suffer, they are shown uh, other Christians, or they are shown their future self. And uh, what are those other Christians, their future self, what are they doing? They're waving palm branches. There's victory. There's victory. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. There's been fighting, and it's over because it's won. And so the great multitude first, uh, there's three things. The first is that they're battle-worn. The second is this. The great multitude is uh, recategorized humanity. You see, I'm very tempted here to use the word diverse, that the body of people in this great multitude is a diverse body. And, And that is most certainly true, but there's more than that. You can see what I'm looking at if you look at verse 9. They are from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. 
Now, by the way, this is one of those things that our children uh, might ask, but we wouldn't, but I'm going to go ahead and ask you. Um, how do you think John can tell in the vision that these are people who represent every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages? I mean, I don't have an answer. I'm just here to ask provocative questions. Your children do. Yeah, how can he tell? It's a vision, and most of their bodies are actually covered with uh, a white robe, and then uh, they have one or perhaps two hands in the air uh, waving uh, palm branches. Uh, how is it that he can actually uh, tell? It could be that there's a, a silhouette of their face. It could be uh, the color of their skin. Uh, it could be that when they cry out, he can hear a multitude of languages. But isn't it interesting that uh, one thing that is undeniable in John's vision, something that he must write and send to these churches, is the reality that this body of people is a recategorized humanity. It's a, it's a category that, that we wouldn't categorize. It's surprising because every earthly way of delineating a people, uh, a way that would make sense by a nation or by tribe, every earthly way of delineating an individual is actually frustrated in this great multitude. And nations mark a distinction between individuals. Tribes or races uh, mark a distinction between individuals. Uh, language most certainly marks a distinction between individuals but not here. That's interesting, isn't it? Earthly distinctions, they can still be seen by John. He can recognize, but that earthly distinction is also lost. The earthly distinction that John can see in the vision, it isn't the kind of distinction that, that divides people as it does on earth. It's the kind of distinction that is present, but they're all together because they are a great multitude. That's what I mean by, yes, it's a diverse body, but it's a recategorized body. There's a new way of looking at humanity. The multitude's a new kind of category. And this was exactly the intention of God's covenant, was it not? that the people of Israel would not be merely the people of Israel, but that they would bless the entire world. And so it's a, it's a war-torn multitude, and it's a recategorized multitude. Thank you for tolerating my use of that word. I know that's strange. But it's also a multitude that is fixated on Jesus. This is the third thing. They are located, as you see in verse 9, in a very special place. They're located before the throne, before the Lamb. And they're crying out not only about salvation, but about a certain kind of salvation, a, a, a salvation uh, that is won by Jesus. And so Jesus is called the Lamb, which reminds us that He was the Lamb who was sacrificed once and for all for our salvation. And there's fixated on the one who achieved his victory at the cross of his own death. And the speaker of verse 12 is uh, hard to determine. I suspect the very last line of our verse is spoken uh, not by the great multitude, but rather by the angels. But the very content of those words uh, show us that this is a body, uh, this multitude, uh, a body of people who are absolutely fixated on Jesus, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, honor, power, might to our God forever and ever for what he has given us in Jesus. And then in verse 9, they're so fixated upon Jesus that they are actually dressed like him. They're wearing white robes. They're so fixated on Jesus that they make their lives actually look like him. 
They live according to him. They put him on. They wear him. And when you look at all of these images, you can't forget that John saw this as a vision and then led by the Holy Spirit to call out in that vision things that are needful for a people who are suffering and need God's comfort. The great multitude is battle-worn, it's recategorized, and it's fixated on Jesus. But so what? What does this mean for the church today? This is where I want to finish. And in order to answer this question, what does this mean for the church today, I want to do something that Presbyterians, uh, unfortunately, are not known for. I want to address our feelings, our experience in the life of the church. You see, Revelation, as I said, was not meant to scare us, but to rather uh, comfort us, and that that need for comfort is actually a real need. It's not something that we just feel and it's not really there. We actually have a real need for this comfort because the persecution is real. And I want to conclude the sermon by telling you two things that are important about this passage for the church today. The first thing is this. Whether we feel it or not, the church is permanent. Whether we feel it or not, the church is permanent. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. The things that we do feel about the church, well, they're actually part of God's plan. That'll need some explaining, won't it? This vision from Jesus tells us that whether we feel it or not, the church is actually permanent. We happen to live in an age where the church feels very worthless. An increasing number of people believe that the benefits of the church can actually be found elsewhere. That any kind of wisdom or body of teaching uh, that there is in the church, I can, find, I can find wisdom and knowledge elsewhere. That any kind of community that we can find in the church or, or friendships within the church, I don't need the church for that. I have my own community. I have my own a set of friends. And any kind of uh, spiritual feelings that can be uh, satisfied in the life of the church, I can satisfy my spiritual feelings on my own. I don't need the church. And so we live in a world in which uh, everything that it seems the church offers, well, can be found elsewhere by many of the people that we speak with. And not only this, many of the people that we speak with, they don't really want to be a part of the church because the church is, after all, so judgmental, so hard. And so many people don't want to associate with the views of the church simply for that alone. That's a hard, awful place. I don't want to hear any benefits of the church. And we actually know this to be true because we feel this. And some of us feel this even in our families. We come from families in which uh, our life in the church... It's unusual to folks in our family. Uh, even families for, for which the church used to be important, those families uh, will get to a place sometimes where the church is no longer uh, important. The church used to play some role in the life of this family, but everyone grew up, and they got smart, and they began to see that the church is outdated, and so they moved on. Many of us actually feel this in our families. But if not in our families, in friendships and uh, colleagues who would say to us that, you know, that church of yours, it's, it had a good run over the centuries, but don't you feel as though the world has moved on? That that was when the world was old and needy and pre-scientific. But now the church is not needed, and it certainly can't satisfy. Let me say a couple of more things. The, uh, some of you who are my age or, or, or older, and by the way, I won't divulge my age, but those of you who are my age or older, uh, you feel that running into Christian people has actually become rarer 
than it used to be. It used to be a lot more common. And it could be that uh, many of you who are uh, younger than I, you don't run into any Christians at all outside of the church. They are rare indeed. Many of us feel this. We sense this. And maybe if we get to know each other well enough, we'll confess to each other that there have been times where I have felt, what am I doing? Spinning my wheels here. Part of this body that drives me incessantly crazy. Well, you know, the Bible uh, says that the church will always be. The church is eternal. Uh, This vision that's given by Jesus himself tells us that his church, his bride, will last forever. Regardless of how we feel in this present age, there will always be a great multitude of followers of Jesus. Will you be a part of that multitude? Yes. Yes, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ. And all of those other things that you can run after to uh, find uh, spiritual leadership or to find wisdom or community and friendship, all of those things, well, those things don't last. The church does. And so this vision from Jesus tells us that whether we feel it or not, the church, she's permanent. But there's another thing. This vision from Jesus tells us the things that we do uh, feel about the church, uh, things that are uh, painful to us with regards to our relationship with the world because we're a part of the church. Well, those things, though they feel painful, though they lead to persecution, though you feel like you are suffering, those things too are actually a part of God's plan. Remember what Jesus shows John about this great multitude. The great multitude, it's battle-worn And it may be that being a Christian in America uh, was at one time far more convenient than it is now. But being a Christian in America never was convenient. The pattern of the world has always been an adversary to the life of the church. Always. Things that the world tolerates, things that the world even praises, they've always been there. Wickedness has always been around the church. Uh, Things that uh, we thought were at a distance may feel uh, closer. That may be true. But the world has always been profoundly opposed to the kingship of Jesus. The world has always been opposed to a threat to her throne or a threat to your throne that you might take the role of Jesus. The battle has always been before us. And not just the battle with the world, the pattern of the world that seeks to conform us, But the battle within us has always been there. The battle against indwelling sin, that has been there for Christians centuries before, and it's there for us now. The Christian life is a life of struggling against indwelling sin. You see, the Christian life is actually meant for persecution. It must be. Because if the world is desperately wicked and desperately in need of rescue through Jesus Christ, so long as she's desperate, she's going to be dangerous. And she will bite and persecute. It's what the world does. But we really believe that about the world because we really believe that the world is dangerously close to hell. And we really believe that there is a great offense to the gospel, that you must repent and believe. And if we believe that that message is really difficult, well, we believe that we live in a world in which we may, will, be hurt. But praise God that he has made us uh, battle-worn. Praise God that he's made us for persecution. How? 
He has defeated the enemy of sin, which can no longer own us in Christ Jesus. That not even God can condemn us because of the salvation that we have through the cross of Jesus. The victory is secured, but it's secured not by me, but by him. And my failure and my fear is still victory because God has protected me. Even though we die, God has protected us. He has preserved us. He has sealed us. And you may feel hurt and in pain. But to hide the fact that we are believers, to sulk away in the corner because we are afraid of the world, is foolish. The victory is won. And to deny Jesus is dangerous indeed, and we need to tell the world that. The battle is endurable, not because I'm strong, or because you're strong, or because Covenant Presbyterian Church is just the greatest church on earth. The battle is endurable because victory is already won. Well, that does seem to matter to the church today, doesn't it? We're also told uh, that the great multitude is recategorized. And just as though I feel as though there's no victory for the church, and there really is, I feel as though the power of the gospel, it just, it does things that I don't actually like. You see, the power of the gospel is this, the power to do the impossible, to cover the filthiest man, to cover the filthiest woman. And all of us, we should smile at this. This is wonderful. There's no person who's beyond saving power of the gospel. There's no sin so vile that it cannot be dealt with by the power of the gospel. But when a gospel saves someone, it places them on the same footing as every other Christian in the world. And then here's where the smile begins to flatten just a bit. You see, we believe this, and so we send missionaries to go and to proclaim the gospel because we believe that the gospel can save people in any nation. But the gospel can also save people who are very much not like me. They're different from me not only nationally, they're different from me economically and socially. They're different from me racially. They're different from me because of the kind of background and the life that they've lived. They're different from me because they're the kind of people uh, that I was brought up not to hang out with. Uh, they're, they're difficult for me in such a way that uh, they're perhaps even my mortal enemy. And yet the gospel can save them too. put a lot of stake in our mortal enemies, don't we? We assume they're going to be my enemy forever. In fact, they might be uh, a multi-generational enemy, uh, the Montague Capulet kind of thing. But the gospel can save your mortal enemy. The gospel can save people who are unlike us in every single way. So on the one hand, this is beautiful, but on the other hand, this is actually painful. But I want to remind us all, what could be more hopeful than this? My persecutor, the one who is in my mind occupying my time, the one who uh, I really have a hard time loving, that even that persecutor may one day be a member of the great multitude in heaven. Isn't it good, then, that God ignores your categories and keeps to his own? Isn't it good that he recategorizes his own great multitude as he sees fit for his own glory? And then uh, thirdly, uh, this. Uh, this great multitude, if it's fixated on Jesus, what does that mean for me now? I want to finish with an illustration from Charles Simeon, great uh, 19th century preacher who spent most of his life preaching to uh, university students in Cambridge. And he asked them to uh, right now uh, imagine that Revelation 7 is happening. Stop where you are 
And think about this. The scene that you just read is happening right now. That there is a body of people, people who have died, but people who are with Jesus. Some of them you had relationships with, family members, friends, and they have died and left us. But this is where they are. And Charles Simeon said, look at their lives, that we might pattern our own lives here after theirs, that we actually would learn from those who are in heaven right now, those who are before the throne and before the Lamb. They're praising God for salvation, and we are obligated to do the same here. We are suffering. We need comfort. But we are actually obligated as Christians to praise God for salvation by grace. And Simeon goes one step further. Uh, I can't imagine if he if he's, uh, isn't but offending the entire congregation. Simeon says that this is not merely an obligation to us today, but it's actually a duty to us today. Those individuals whom we loved and have had to say goodbye to, who love Jesus Christ and are now before the throne of the Lamb, they are wearing the kind of robe that we need to wear. The fixation that we have on Jesus is not the kind of fixation that only happens in corporate worship. We come together and we worship in a grand, regal way. The obligation that we have as Christians is to wear those robes of purity in our life today. As Simeon says to his congregation that we are to uh, be engaged in the continual application of the blood and spirit of Christ to our very souls. Simeon says that fighting the good fight, finishing the race, it's a matter of personal holiness in the face of wickedness. To be fixated on Jesus is a matter not just of corporate worship. It's a matter of our whole lives. Today, we are called, even if it means we will be killed, to live holy lives before the Lamb. You see, John's vision It's not merely an event. It's a pattern for us. We're battle-worn as Christians, but victorious. As Christians, we make categories, but God recategorizes for his own glory. And as Christians, uh, we don't give God just portions of our lives. We are so fixated upon that throne that our entire life's passion is meant for him. Because despite persecution and the desperate need for comfort, the church body will endure to the very end to live with and worship Jesus for all eternity. Let's pray together. Our Father, we love you and we love what you have done in uh, creating for yourself a great multitude. Thank you through faith making us a part of that great multitude. Would we live lives accordingly? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.